Right. Hey everybody. Uh, so this week is going to be a little bit less of a sermon and probably more reflection. So I don't have a specific passage. Uh, we're going to kind of take a break from the parable sermon series we've, we've been doing and bring it back next week. But this week instead, I want to talk about Ash Wednesday and this season of Lent that we just kicked off. And Lent, if you don't know, is the 40 days leading up to Easter, excluding some days. They don't count that in the uh, the, the church calendar. And I'm going to give you just kind of a taste of, of what that is and what that means. So I really highly recommend, even better than anything I'm going to say today, um, I recommend you read the Daily Prayer Project introduction. It is beautiful and robust and gives a really great summary. Uh, and it also has a few reflections in there that I just think are incredibly helpful. Um, and you should probably do that even before this Sunday, uh, bef so that when we start doing that together this this coming Sunday, you have a little bit more context on like why those passages and those prayers are being highlighted. So it's beautiful. But for this morning, or today, because it's actually like 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, um, I'm going to talk about three things. One, what Lent isn't, <laughs> right? Some misconceptions, as well as what it is actually all about. Number two some specific suggestions for how to get the most out of it, especially this year, uh, being still in the midst of a pandemic, right? And then three, I'm going to tie it all together with this really beautiful illustration and metaphor using the Japanese art form of kintsugi, uh, courtesy of one of my favorite authors and artists all time. Uh, his name is Makoto Fujimura, and trust me, it'll It'll be awesome. It'll make a lot of sense. So, but first let's talk about what Lent isn't and is all about. First of all, Lent, number one, is not about legalism, right? Contrary to what many of our experiences sometimes can be about this season, the point is not to beat yourself up or to somehow, you know, out-humble the rest of society by thinking, woe is me, right? American Christianity has a long history rooted in the Second Great Awakening of, in the middle of the 19th century, of equating genuine faith or repentance with this kind of woe is me, false humility and self-flagellation. It's not that we love doing that to ourselves, that, that this is common for, for the American church. It's actually rooted in this emotionalism that relies on a fear of not being saved or a doubt of not being saved to drive us to confession, which functionally puts our hope or faith in our work of repentance which is kind of an American or emotional version of the medieval practice of whipping yourself and, and practicing penance, right? It's we get our hope and our reassurance out of what we've done rather than God's salvation, okay? So here's what it is instead. It's not about legalism. It is, though, about contemplating grace. See, God is not a law and order detective yelling, confess while blinding you with a bright fluorescent lights. He's a surgeon exposing the spiritual cancer, which is sin, in, with the light of grace in order to give us all new hearts. It is the cross's assurance of God's grace and love that allows us to look more deeply into that spiritual cancer in the first place, which then only magnifies our appreciation and experience of grace. So when we start feeling like we're taking God's love for granted, if we're not just feeling it, when we feel the when we feel that, that potency of grace start to wane, it is always one or both of either ignoring spiritual cancer 
we're forgetting that we didn't perform that heart surgery on ourselves. That actually God did, right? So, number two, here's what Lent is not about. It's also not about self-improvement. For the love of God, literally, please don't sanctify healthier eating habits to lose your COVID-19, as in your 19 pounds that we've all gained during COVID, by giving up sugar or something like that. Like, it's a good idea, right? Being healthy is a good idea. But this isn't about proving yourself that you have the willpower to set aside some aspect of our privilege that we've taken for granted and want to regain an appreciation for. Giving something up for Lent is also not a spiritual practice that you can just select off of a buffet and combine with whatever you want. It's, it's meaningless as a tool for self-improvement. It's meaningless uh, for the same reason it is not a legalistic self-flagellation. Because God is driving the transformative work in all of us, not us. Lent is just a way that we pay more attention to and cooperate with how he is growing and improving us spiritually. It's not about us, okay? Lent is, rather, about embracing our finiteness. You see, when hunger is met so quickly with a snack or fast food that we never become familiar with it, you, don't, you also don't appreciate the taste of food. We don't appreciate the diversity and the range. We don't appreciate the nourishment it provides us. We are far more dependent uh, on God than we 21st century Americans ordinarily have an experience of or a visceral acute awareness of, especially compared to global and, and historical standards. Appreciating the good things that he gives us or the ways in which he provides for us is incredibly important, but it's still a fraction of what we can celebrate until our, frag our, until our fragility is accentuated and exposed by not having one or more of those gifts. In other words, we don't appreciate something until we don't have it. But instead of appreciating that thing that we are, that we are giving up during Lent, it's about appreciating God, the giver of those gifts. Right? So that leads us to our third thing that Lent is not about. Lent is not about rote ritual. Whether via the news or social media or goods and services marketed as cure-alls to our every need, everything around us nudges our hearts toward, toward self-concern and keeping us anxiously engaged. So if, you've turned, if you're turned off by a liturgical season on the church calendar, just try turning off your phone for a few days and see how dependent you have been on it. See how much it has actually been implicitly shaping you in ways you don't realize just by the, the weird repetitive motion of your thumb doing this, right? That is a liturgy. It's a digital liturgy. Every bit as much as this is a, a spiritual liturgy, but it shapes you. It transforms your, your, your affections. And even though you may not feel it in an ex as an experience in the moment, it is really healthy and good in ways that we, we need more than ever in this day and age. And so that, that's, what, that's what Lent is. Lent is about living liturgically and living intentionally in that way. You see, when we go against the grain of these you know, otherwise cultural liturgies that, that I just got done describing, when we do that in any way, it can either feel emotionally hollow and unsatisfying because we're used to artificial stimulus and mountaintop experiences, or it can be anxiety-inducing, honestly, because we're disconnecting from these digital liturgies and addictions that, that are designed to cultivate 
and create in us anxiety and FOMO on an ultimate and epic level. So if anything, the degree to which we think liturgy is rote or boring is actually the degree to which we desperately need it. Speaking personally, right, for me, as an ADD digital addict, right, I'm not coming from a place of, like, self-righteousness in this, but mutual need. I'm at the top of that list, right? Over time, but not immediately, our affections will become rooted, anchored, and shaped into a deepness that transcends circumstantial and cultural anxiety. In other words, that's what Paul is describing in Philippians when he says that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds when we go to God in prayer and do it regularly, not even, not even waiting until it's, we, we feel the need for it, but, but doing it out of an act of faith and dependence on him that is rooted in something that transcends how we're feeling in a given moment, right? So let me, all that said, if that's what Lent is and isn't, Here's some specific suggestions for how to get the most out of it this year, because let's be honest, all of us are feeling particularly fragile and finite after this last year. Number one, live liturgically, right? I know it just kind of stems from this last point that I was just trying to make. We are using the Daily Prayer Project on Sunday mornings. Use it Monday through Saturday, morning and evening. Just try it. Even if it's only morning or evening, that's completely fine. Everything else... That, I, that follows, that I'm going to offer as a suggestion, is going to be easier with that baseline foundation of scripture and prayer that focuses, intentionally focuses your time and attention. You've got nothing to lose and, frankly, just a lot of peace of mind and heart to gain, right? Um, second, confess your need. And, and we have a tendency. We will, kind of depending on where we gravitate toward, we're, gonna, we're going to often only focus on either uh, confessing our need that comes from a result of our sin, right? Because, man, to talk about our need and our brokenness is, is scary. But I can kind of, if I can control my behavior and I can confess my sin, then that's in some ways easier than confessing my need. Others of us will gravitate in the other direction. It's, it's one thing to say, like, I am needy and I am not perfect. Nobody is perfect. And, you know, I'm broken. I've been sinned against and that's hard and hurtful. For some of us, that's a lot easier than saying, like, I've actually contributed to somebody else's brokenness. Like, I have caused harm and hurt. Confession is both and. And, and I would encourage you to, to start by using the Daily Prayer Project, again, because it has prompts in there to help you identify your sin more clearly and allow God to attend to your brokenness more openly. But don't stop there. Don't just use the prompts in somebody else's words because that would be rote ritual. Also, build on that. It's, look at it as, as, as training wheels for something that's a little bit more organic and natural and coming even from an even more heartfelt place. Say it and vulnerably confess your sin and brokenness to both God and others verbally. Right? Say it. Don't just think it. And, and especially if it involves somebody else, go and tell that person, I've sinned against you by doing this. Will you please forgive me? Like, I know that sounds like, I don't know, maybe unnecessary or, or, or oddly specific and explicit. Like that's part of the spiritual practice of this. And I encourage you, especially as you're kind of, I hope and I hope all of us are doing this, pumping the brakes a little bit, trying to be more contemplative and slow down. Pay attention to when you're prompted by the Holy Spirit, right? 
you know what I'm talking about. Don't don't shrug that you know out of nowhere nudge that's encouraging you to apologize to your spouse for being short with them, even though they didn't get complain about it in the moment. Don't ignore that that urge or that you know thought. Maybe I should cancel that end of the day meeting that I know will cut the time I have with my kids in half before they have to go to bed. Don't ignore the, the, the reminder or the remembering to pick up the phone to call a friend you've neglected responding to because the longer you wait, the more you owe them an apology for dropping the ball, which makes it harder and longer to wait. And by the way, all of these are hypothetical and definitely not examples of my own direct personal failures to respond to that prompt of the Holy Spirit. I know you don't believe me, and that's probably best. Here's my point. Whatever that is and whenever that is, Stop what you're doing. Literally, just, just stop. Close your eyes and ask God in that moment to confirm whether that is his voice and ask him to nudge you further toward how he would have you act upon it and then do it. And yes, that includes particularly and especially whatever coincidentally came to mind as you're listening to me say that. Literally right now, hit pause, quiet your heart and mind, and ask God how he would want you to respond. Go ahead. Okay, you're back. Third thing that you can do, a suggestion, right? Go without. Honestly, the pandemic has already taken away so much of what we normally rely on for our comfort and security instead of God. So consider giving up whatever it is that actually keeps you from leveraging that to contemplate your need and God's love in the midst of it, everything that's still going on. Don't waste this time, in other words, right? For me, as a raging extrovert, self-described, I am normally depending on my interactions with people and hosting people in our home to kind of help me pump the brakes and slow down. See, when, and so when I'm on my own like this, and we're all, like we all are during this pandemic, I become so much more easily task-driven and tempted with a workaholism that achieves my dignity, value, and worth rather than receive it from Jesus. Social media try, like wants to, I know I'm like kind of personifying something that is by definition of an algorithm, but that's what its design is, right? It kind of, it, it wants to fill that vacuum and that space and is tempting because it promises that kind of connectivity and interaction that I long for that actually does help me slow down. But it just makes it worse for, for more reasons than I can get into now. Um, but consider consider giving that up for Lent. Maybe, maybe not all day or every day, but lock your phone in a separate room once you're done working for the day de, for the day. Delete social media or other anything on your phone that is is prompting and giving you notifications outside of an actual phone call, right? Because um, that all just feeds anxious distraction and keeps you from noticing God's presence throughout the day. It is, it is literally antithetical to any kind of mindfulness. Just so, just so cut it off, right? Maybe, maybe however, uh, maybe that's not a distraction for you. Um, but I know something that anyone can stand to go without more than we think, no matter who you are. 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself. It's our love for it because money is an empty vehicle that affords for us whatever kind of deep idol it is that we are tempted to replace 
and dependence on God with, whether that is power, comfort, convenience, possessions, etc. Right? If you've ever read Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, it is an incredible book, and that is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so yes, because, because those things keep us from being more dependent on God. So yes, the table, if the table is your church home, I encourage you to give until it starts to hurt. Give until it starts to hurt. Until you wince at the loss and you start to think to yourself, God, I, I sure hope this is worth it. And I'd really appreciate some reassurance that it is right now, right? I'm not talking about like not paying your mortgage or buying groceries for your family. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it starts to infringe on your ability to impulse buy or to, to prioritize something that is more for you than for God or his kingdom. Now, because... I'll be, I'll be honest, some of you are, are incredibly generous, and the table exists because of the generosity of most of you who are watching this, right? But often, we can, we, we, can, we can be generous and safe rather than generous and sacrificial, right? Generous and safe is, is not giving until, giving a lot, but maybe not giving until it hurts, and that's why it's a different standard for everybody and it is it is really based on this principle of of what causes us to have to prioritize a trust in God for giving to us rather than a trust in our ability to do so right use lent to lean into a greater dependence on God's faithfulness to provide by giving even more generously even if you're already giving generously now start to give until it hurts and if you're at all skeptical, by the way, that I am saying that for some reason other than your spiritual health and growth. I get that. That's, the church has a really bad history of this. But, like, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm, uh, I would be thrilled, like, seriously thrilled, uh, to have a thorough discussion, hear you out, and dig into that in much greater detail. So just let me know. So the fourth and final suggestion I want to give before I kind of move into this kind of controlling illustration or... or metaphor is even after I'm saying all this I want you to give yourself at least as much grace as God gives you right which by the way is infinite because Jesus <laughs> let, me, let me put it this way it, it, do you, maybe do you feel like you're bad at Lent if so good that's actually the entire point of Lent if you're like excited about Lent from a place of like, I can check all the boxes and achieve all the things, you're literally doing it wrong. The entire point is to come to the end of yourself and bring you reminded of your need for God in such a way that you are driven back to him in ways you are not, we're not normally so acutely dependent throughout the rest of the year. It's the entire point is to remind us that we are created, not the creator. So any reminder of our fragility and finiteness, and especially our inability to embrace it like this, is, it, is the entire point. Let the weakness of your faith redirect the eyes of your heart to God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And that will move you toward an appreciative gratitude, which will then fuel a greater strength of faith and a greater faithfulness in being dependent on God. Never stop restarting. It's not just okay that this isn't easy. It's the entire point. I know I'm saying this several times because I want to hammer this home. You can't do this 
not on your own power, but slowly and surely, you can out of God's grace. Okay. In a lot of ways, I've kind of given you a lot of the what and the how, but not as much of the why. And, and if you're feeling a little bit anxious or uncomfortable or maybe even a little stressed by like, oh, I kind of need some, I need some release of this tension, good, because I'm trying to literally do uh, much of what I'm, uh, where I'm encouraging us toward as a church. So to tie all this together, let me talk about this, this kintsugi, courtesy of Makoto Fujimura. Kintsugi is a, uh, a Japanese art form that is linked to a 16th century tea master named Sen no Rikyu. I'm probably butchering that name, but Sen no Rikyu. And if you didn't know, that the practice of brewing, pouring, and drinking tea together is, is a highly artistic 500-year-old practice of hospitality, largely inspired actually by watching Christian missionaries in Japan and, and converts take communion together. It's all about hospitality that is driven and fueled by grace. And that in and of itself is, is beautiful and, and would be worth talking about. But far more importantly, this is also why kintsugi is even more beautiful and profound. You see, sometimes uh, these fragile porcelain pots or bowls would, would fall and break and, and shatter into a million pieces. And rather than throwing away the, those millions of broken shards and pieces, not millions, probably more like dozens, but rather than throwing them away, um, they would... Uh, lovingly gather them up and save them. Those shards would then be considered family treasures and heirlooms that are passed down from generation to generation, along with the story of how they broke, who the tea was shared between, and the reason for their gathering together in the first place. And at some point, those shards would be then be taken to a tea master who would, who would kind of glue them all back together but with the finest of Japanese gold and lacquer. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I'm going to put a, a picture, an example of this in the email so that you can see what, what, what I'm talking about. Um, but kintsugi is, is the combination of two words, kin meaning gold, and tsugi meaning both to mend and to link the generations together. So why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because when we use words like redemption and restoration, forgiveness, the gospel, whatever, we typically mean to communicate a kind of uh, healing or forgiving or, for, or, or fixing that, that erases all signs of having been broken in the first place. But that's actually far more American than Christian. The biblical redemption that Lent reinstills in us and prepares us to more fully celebrate on Easter is not an erasure of brokenness and death, but a co-opting or a leveraging of it in order to recreate something of even greater beauty and value than the original. In other words, the cross turns sin back on itself to achieve its opposite end, resurrection instead of destruction. And it transforms our experience of brokenness from one of shame and guilt into honor, dignity, and beauty. Kintsugi, kintsugi bowls are exponentially more valuable than their unbroken counterparts because of their redemptive history. A history that has been passed down through generations and etched into the patterns, fractures, and fissures that are utterly unique to each bowl. And all of that is then highlighted celebrated, not hidden, 
not undone, but, but redeemed through the extravagant use of pure gold to mend an everyday kitchen utensil. The ordinary is made extraordinary through recreation. All of this is a vivid illustration of God's own gracious hospitality for his broken but beloved people. So to gloss over our finite fragility and sinful brokenness is actually to miss out on the breadth and depth of redemptive beauty that Jesus brings to the table. And yes, I mean that pun intended, referring both to his church, the table, and the table that is the Last Supper or Communion. That is what we are doing in remembrance of him. That is, that's the gospel. So let me leave you with this. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes and says to the church in Ephesus, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. The word workmanship here is the Greek word poema. And yes, it's where we get the word poem from. When Paul says we are poema, quote, quote, created in Christ Jesus, he means that the kind of redemptive recreation that Kintsugi plays at like my four-year-old son plays with Legos. Because as beautiful as Kintsugi is, it pales in comparison to the beauty of brokenness co-opted by Christ's death and resurrection for the sake of our resurrection. Now we need not fear death, either the death in an ultimate sense or the, the experience of death that, that, that happens when we when we allow ourselves to be ex vulnerably exposed in both our need as a, as, a, as a function of our brokenness and our need as a function of our sinfulness. Repentance, then, is not unto death. It is not a giving up of ourself. It's actually an embracing of Jesus that is a repentance unto life. That is what Lent is all about. And the necessary, good, flourishing preparation for more fully beholding the beauty, the beautiful love that Jesus has for you. So, that's my encouragement. Lean into that, during Lent especially, and let me know if you want to talk more about how. I love you guys, and I'll see you on Sunday.